We're going to be back in Exodus chapter 20, uh, back in the 10 words, the 10 commands of God, the Decalogue. Last week, by way of introduction and starting our series into the Ten Commandments, we looked at our reasons for studying the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words of God. Specifically, we looked at some reasons why it is important to study the law. And those were, you don't have to write them down now. If you want to take notes on this, you can listen to last week's sermon at VentureToSoto.com. But those were, um, we study the law because people don't know the law. People don't generally know the commands. They don't know what... God requires. How are we to keep what God requires if we don't know what God requires? We study the law because the Ten Commandments were used and have been used as an ethic for living throughout church history. We study the Ten Commandments because the church that we are a part of and not excluded from has used the Ten Commandments as a way, a standard bearer, an ethic for living. We study the Ten Commandments because they are foundational to the Old and New Covenants. You look in the Old Testament, you see the Ten Commandments all through it. You look in the New Testament theology, you see the Ten Commandments through it. We study the Ten Commandments because they are a picture of the heart of God and because they are good. If everybody in this room kept all, were able to keep all the Ten Commandments always, we wouldn't need rules and regulation. There wouldn't be church conflict. We wouldn't have church polity in general if everybody would, were able to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly because the Ten Commandments are good. And they're good because they're an image. They are a picture of the heart of God. They're good. We also uh, keep the Ten Commandments because they are the basis for the ethic of living in modern day society. The commands, the basic commands and laws that we have today were written based on the ideas of the commands of God. And so we keep those at the forefront of our mind because they are an ethic for modern-day living also. It's important that we study the Ten Commandments because God gives us His heart, and He shows us how we can draw closer to Him. He shows us through obedience how we can love Him more and how we can be like Jesus. They are vastly important. We should, of all people, be people who value the Ten Commandments and cherish them as the Word of God. After all, the Ten Commandments are a mirror that reveal the inner depravity of mankind. The Ten Commandments cannot fix our depravity. We know that only trusting in Jesus can fix our depravity. But the Ten Commandments show us the depravity of our heart. They show us our shortcomings. They show us our inability of keeping the law apart from Jesus Christ. And they show us our need for Jesus as the perfect law keeper. The Ten Commandments are vastly important in the life of every believer. Vastly important to know and to cherish and to study. I want you to point this out, and it may not have been any sort of special revelation to you. may not, not special revelation in the biblical sense, but just might not have been special. But the Ten Commandments were given... By God, the Father. But Jesus, as a part of the Trinity, was also there when the Ten Commandments were given. He was at Mount Sinai. And the Ten Commandments were given with the work of the cross in mind. So don't think that Jesus Jesus came, just because Jesus came to fulfill the law, that he came to abolish the law. The Bible says, not a punctuation mark will pass away of the law until he returns. Not a punctuation mark. That's the... I've got to be careful about that. Seth called me out last week. That's the Bryce American Standard Version 
of that verse, by the way. It's a paraphrase. But anyway, um, so the law will not pass away. God came. God gave the law with Jesus in mind, and Jesus was there at the giving of the law. I do want to read just our command and the verses that we're going to focus on today one more time, even though they were just read. I think it's important to sort of refocus on that. So we're going to start in verse 4, and we're going to go through verse 6 today of Exodus chapter 20. If you'll look again, last week we studied no other gods before me. We talked a little bit about idolatry, uh, which was important last week because these two are connected. And we're not going to talk so much about idolatry as we are going to talk today about the command of no carved images, no graven images. Look and read with me today. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Pray with me today. Uh, I thought it was the ESV. Okay, my bad. I must have copied and pasted it wrong. And I didn't want to open my Bible because it hurts my hand too. Thank you. Pray with me today. God, we love you. Lord, we're so thankful for all that you've done for us and all that you are. You are good and you are holy. And if that's all that we knew about you, that would be enough. Lord, help us to trust in your goodness when we can't see or always understand what you're doing in our lives. Help us to pursue and seek your holiness. Like Paul said, not that we're there, but we continue pressing on towards the mark that you've called us to. Lord, help us as a church, God, to not put anything in front of our worship of the one true God. Help us to trust you, to love you, to follow you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Last week... Last week, we looked at God's command to have no other gods before him. The Lord was saying this to to break the stronghold of the false gods that the false gods had over his people. Remember where they came from. They came from Egypt, a polytheistic society. Every society around them was a polytheistic society. As a matter of fact, it would have been considered weird to be a monotheist. Even Paul Thousands of years later, when he went to preach in Athens, and we'll talk about that, when he went and spoke in Athens, it was foreign to them to hear about Jesus and the work that he had done. And it was foreign to hear about this God. Monotheism was not something that was followed very strictly. Paul, I mean, um, excuse me, the Lord reminds his people to have one God, only God, that he is one and he is the only one worthy of worship, to remind them again of their emptiness, the emptiness of bowing down to another God. We discussed how as a means of finding security, people would create other gods. It goes something like this. The crops are are bad or the crops are great. Let's call upon the God of the harvest. The seas rage. Let's look to the God of the sea. 
No rain. Let's pray for the God to the God of the sky. Someone is born. Let's look to the God of life. Or, or someone dies. Let's look to the God of, le- of death. The reason people create other gods is because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of a God who possesses all of that power that is attributed to the other gods. It is a fearful thing that there weren't hundreds of God who had sm- hundreds of gods who had small bits of authority, but there was one God who possessed all power and authority. And the most fearful thing about all of that is that everyone is accountable to that singular God. So it's easier to create gods taking one or a few characteristics of the one true God and making up a little God, little G God for themselves. So last week was about worshiping the right God, about worshiping the right God. Well, today takes a little turn and we find out it isn't just necessary to worship the right God, but we must worship the right God in the right way. This command is, uh, not, is, is to not take or make an idol of any kind. It is not to make an idol of any kind made after anything. And what we see here, the sea, the land, everything is mentioned. Anything in the sky, the sea, the land. It's mentioned to mention you're not supposed to make an idol of anything. It's saying of anything in the whole world, of anything that you can see, of anything that you can touch, you are not supposed to. To make an idol of. This command is not to make an idol of anything of any kind. Or specifically it's not to make an idol of anything that even represents Yahweh. They weren't, it wasn't just don't make an idol. It's don't make an idol even if your idol represents the one true God. Don't make idols in general. The KJV calls this don't make graven idols images or carved images. An idol was something crafted by a tool, whether it was carved out of wood, chiseled out of stone, engraved in metal, or even cast. It was cut and shaped by human hands. It was a man-made representation of some divine being. This command is telling God's people not to make a carved or graven image or any other image and bow down and worship it. It's much more than that though. This is also saying don't make a graven image of God and worship it. Don't even make an image of Yahweh and worship it. Don't take graven things, holy things, or things that are meant to be point us to a holy God and worship those things. This was a problem amongst God's people. Then you might not have known this. This was the reason that Moses had so much anger at the golden calf. You might have thought that Moses was so mad because the people had turned away from the one true God so quickly. But that wasn't what was happening with the story of the golden calf. And you might not have ever realized this. And if you have, then you're just one step ahead. Think back to when Aaron crafted the golden calf. This is an ex- well, think back and we'll study it in a little bit, but this is an excerpt from that in verse 4 of um, Exodus chapter, I didn't write it down, so I can't remember, 18, I think. Excuse me, 22. I can't remember, I'm sorry. I didn't write it down. See, that's part of the problem with, you know, having a nail through your hand. Um, so, 
So think back to when Aaron uh, crafted the golden calf, and this is what it said. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these, listen, these are the gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow we feast to the Lord. You know what he's saying? At the, the image of the golden calf was meant to represent God. And he said, tomorrow we feast to Yahweh. That's the literal word he used there. Tomorrow we feast to Yahweh. The golden calf was supposed to be a representation of the God who rescued them from Egypt. Of the God who saved them from Pharaoh. It was taking a holy God and profaning his name by worshiping an unholy image. The Westminster Catechism, the Shorter Catechism says, Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. The making of graven images is, such, is so much more prevalent than even we would think. From a practical standpoint, I would say that we should stay away from charms or dream catchers or rabbit's feet or crystals or stones or, or jewelry or really anything that can be found in nature or that can be carved or any other sort of good luck charms. Why? Because of, on some level, if we believe that image has a certain power, even a little bit, then that is a level of worship of either God in a false way or a false God. Even, friends, if it's the cross or a crucifix, even if it's made after the image of something holy or sacred, the people who were making the images back in that time, they believed that the stone or the wood or the metal, it had power. They believed that they could specifically draw from that power as they worshipped, even if they were worshipping the one true God. And Christians still do that today. When we look at church buildings as holy and necessary instead of helpful and practical, we make an idol of that building. We should look at the assembly of God the, uh, the assembly of God's people as holy and special and not the building. I'm not saying that church buildings are not important. I'm, I look forward to a day when we have a church building. It's going to make practically, logistically, it's going to make things a lot easier for us in different ways. But we should not look at the building as holy. You should not call the church building God's house. The church building is God's house when God's people humbly gather together to worship in God, the one true God of the universe, in spirit and in truth. Amen. When the people leave the building every week, it's just a building. I'm not saying that gives us an excuse to not take care of it, to not do our best, because we should do everything to the glory of the Lord. We should not see communion or the communion table as holy or powerful, or the pulpit, or clothes, or anything associated with the church, even though that... The pastor is not graven by the hands of man. He is not carved out by the hands of man. The pastor even can be an idol when we worship him in a way that only God deserves. I'm not saying we shouldn't respect these places, these, these people or these things. But we should do so in the proper context. We are the church. The church building is not sacred. 
Communion is sacred because of the representative act, not because of the table, not because of who gives it, or not because of the type of bread and juice. The pulpit and the pastor are not sacred, but should be respected because of what they represent. Because of what they do, they, oh, the, the word of God is opened at this music stand pulpit. The pastor should be preaching the word of God. And so he should be respected for that, but not worshipped as a little God. On another note, and I can promise you my Catholic friends will not agree or they'll see it differently. But there is no power in the rosary. There is no power in statues, statues of Mary, statues of St. Michael, statues of the apostles. There is no power even in the crucifix. One problem I have with the Catholic Church is that this worship or this representation of the many statues and the many, I would say, little idols, it is a base form of idolatry. And it leads to a further idolatry. It leads to people taking holy things and worshiping them as, or on some level, at least practically on some level, the same as God. And for us, we make holy things profane when we worship them on the same or similar level as God. Even if we're trying to worship God through them. If we have our lucky cross, or if we have our lucky t-shirt, or, or if this is our seat that we sit in on Sunday morning to get the most spiritual, I don't know, whatever it may be. And we hold those things highly as if they within themselves hold some power that draws us closer to God. That is a form of a graven image. That is a form of idolatry. Because what it does is it puts that image, that graven thing on a different level. And even at times on the level of God. You need to understand something. This is not an indictment on art or on ornate things. As a matter of fact, it is godly and it is good to use the abilities that God has given you to create things to his glory. Even in the church. It's okay that the church has ornate things, I believe. I mean, look at the building of the temple. It was the most ornate building that we can comprehend. It was the most ornate building that we can comprehend. It is not, it is not an indictment on having nice things. It is not an indictment on art or building things or, or being even proud of the work of your hands. It is an indictment on believing that if I just touch this, or if I'm just able to be in its presence. If I'm just able to be close to it. Thousands of people, specifically Catholic people, make pilgrimage to Catholic images all over the world. If they can just be close. Years ago when I was a kid, there was a statue of the Virgin Mary that supposedly cried tears of blood. People made pilgrimages People travel to the person, person's house who accidentally cooked a grilled cheese with the face of Jesus in it. Just so they could be close, as if there's some power held within 
that item. This, friends, is idolatry. This, friends, is making a graven image of something. Even if you didn't form it with your hands, but you're willing to worship. Aaron, the Bible says, formed the sacred calf. Who was, condi- who was punished for the calf? The people of God. The people who worshipped it. It's not just the image carver, but it's the people who hold to the power or who enthralled by the power of that image. So I've got two things for you really quickly or sort of quickly. I want to ask you two questions. The first is this. Why should we not carve or worship sacred images? The first question is why should we not carve or worship sacred images? And what is the punishment for breaking God's command? Why should we not carve or worship sacred images? Or, you know, you can put sacred in quotes if that helps you out. And why or what is the punishment for disobeying God's commands? The first reason I think we shouldn't, pun, we shouldn't worship graven images is this. Graven images are inadequate of God's deity and undeserving of His majesty. They are inadequate of His deity and undeserving of His majesty. One reason that they are inadequate of His deity and undeserving of His majesty is that it puts God in a box. Friends, Jesus is more than a crucifix. He is more than a church building. He cannot be contained within the confines of things made by finite people. When Paul in Acts 17 was in Athens and he was looking at the pantheon of their gods and he was distraught by what he saw, but he used it to, to point out a gospel message and to point people back to Jesus. We see this especially when he saw the idol of the unknown God. And he said this about God and the idols in general in Acts 17. He said, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temple built, temples built by hands. Then he is not served by human hands and is in is as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Paul was clarifying the relationship between the creator and the creature. We do not make God. He made us. And when we try with finite hands to carve the infinite God, we miss the mark. So we belittle, we berate, We profane and we box God in when we try to put God into a crucifix or into a cross. When we try to put God into the statue of the Virgin Mary, the arch, arch, art angel, Michael. When we try to put him into a statue of St. John or Peter or whatever it may be. We don't make graven images Because the graven images are inadequate of his deity and undeserving of his majesty. Another reason, and this is vastly important, because God is revealed through his word and not by sight. One reason that, another reason that we do not make graven images is because God is revealed by his word and not by sight. People in general, but especially religious people, long for something tangible in a way that is acceptable for them to touch and hold and see and kiss and feel and all of those things. They long for something tangible, something sort of more objective. 
This is why the people of Athens had idols for every single thing. They even had an idol for the idol of the unknown God, just so they could cover all of their bases, just so they could have something to touch, something to feel. But God, at least pre-Jesus and after his ascension, until he returns, is not meant to be seen or touched. But God has revealed himself in his words and now through his word. Now you have to hear me. God, before Jesus, after his ascension, until he returns. We know that Jesus was God incarnate and he was seen and touched and he was felt. But before that and after that, until he returns, he is meant to be seen I mean, he's meant to be heard and not necessarily seen. We will see this in Exodus 33, that the Lord said to Moses, no one can look at God and live. He's too holy. He's too majestic. Not only can the finite not carve God into a proper image, but he cannot also handle the sight of him. We as finite creatures cannot handle the sight of the infinite God. He has not designed it to where he is to be seen or touched in order to be worshipped. But worshipped. But the Bible says that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are at home in the body. Or excuse me, that as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Therefore, we walk by faith and not by sight. To make an image of God is to demean how he has planned to be revealed. It is to assume that we can make or create something better than the way that God has already chosen to reveal himself. He is infinite. He's too infinite to be carved. He has revealed himself through the hearing and not sight. And also this. And this is C. God has tangible revelation through his image bearers. If you want something tangible that God exists, if you want something tangible that he is worthy of worship and that he is worthy of praise, look around you. Look around you and see the other Christians that sit beside you. If you want to touch God, yep, I see God in your life. He exists. There's your tangible proof. There's your tangible proof. The church, the body of Christ, is meant to be objective and tangible proof that God exists, that He is worthy of worship. So next time you're having a little bit of doubt, next time you need to, you need to have your faith strengthened, go poke on the arm the person that has meant most to you in your walk with Jesus. And you will know that God exists. You will know that he has revealed himself. And you will know that he still is. Which is another reason why it's so important that those claiming Christ are actually doing the will of Christ. It is another reason why those claiming Christ should actually be following him in spirit and in truth. Because it is imperative for the rest of us that you love and follow Jesus as he has commanded. It is imperative for my faith, for in order for my faith to be strengthened, in order for me to know that Jesus exists, for me to be reassured of that, it's important 
for me to be able to look at you as a fellow Christian, as someone who claims Christ, and be able to see your faith and say, yep, sure does. Now, my faith is not built on that. My faith is not built on your faith. But I will tell you, it makes a difference. It does strengthen me to know that other people are here. First, for the glory of God. And then all that comes along with it. But secondly, because we are a tangible revelation in the church and in the world that Jesus exists and he is who he says he is and was. An example I can give you of this, and I don't mean to give this as a form of bragging or telling you, look at my righteousness, but I want you to hear this. I had a friend who posted on Facebook about his uh, family member who was uh, essentially homeless. Uh, She had a she basically retired from her job and she didn't see, um, she probably wasn't financially, super financially stable anyway, but she retired from her job and she didn't know that she could not draw from her retirement until 31 days after she retired. So her power had been cut off. I'm sure she wasn't super financially stable anyway. Her power had been cut off. She hadn't had food. And he, he, told, he told this about fa- on Facebook and I saw it. And so I, I collected some money and we took it and we bought her a hotel room. We gave her some money for food, you know, all of this stuff. But my message to her, and this was the message to you, and this is the message that you're either giving as a Christian or you're not giving as a Christian. And I was, I didn't give a full gospel presentation, but this was the gospel presentation I gave. I said, I know what you've gone through in your life. She's lost. She, two, two of her three children are dead. One of her, one of her children is in prison the one that was helping support her. Two of her three children are dead. One died in a car accident. One died of a drug overdose years and years ago. And I said, I know what you've experienced. One person, any person would would have, it would be a horror that they would go through. I know that you've experienced more than any person can be able to handle. And I know at times that you don't believe. But over the years, I've thought about you and I've prayed for you. And when Mark, excuse me, I just revealed a little bit, but I was told, it's okay, it's not, I wasn't trying, I was just trying to keep it private for the sake of the conversation, but when I was told that you needed this, I knew that I had to help you because I knew that you had trouble believing, and I want you to understand that this is not a gift because I'm a good person. This is a gift because I want you to see that God exists, and God cares for you, and he loves you, and he wants you to have a relationship with him. I'm not bragging. But I am giving you an example of how the gospel can be given so clearly and how other people can know that Jesus exists by the life that you live. They will not know that he exists if you do good things and don't let them know why you're doing good things. I mean, I'm not saying to be braggadocious about it or to be annoying about it. You know, don't wear a t-shirt about it necessarily. But, but they will not know if you don't point them to Jesus when you're doing these type of things. But they will, people will know by your actions, by your words, that Jesus exists, and you're proof of that. Friends, what I'm about to say is so vastly important. As Christians, we are designed to live in a way that puts, we talked about blinders a couple weeks ago, that puts spiritual blinders on believers and enlightens the spiritual eyes of unbelievers for the purpose of drawing their attention to Jesus and not to any idol or other distraction from the truth. 
We are to be such purveyors of the truth in word and in deed that people's hearts and minds don't long for any substitute but seek the real thing. We are to be tangible proof and a revelation of God. You've had that person, right? There's been a person in your life that you look at and you say, I mean, you might not have said, this is how I know God exists. But there's a person in your life that the Lord has taken over their life so much and he has done so much in their life and there's so much proof of it that it gives you so much confidence in the existence of God. It gives you so much confidence, not only that God exists, but that he's still working and he's still moving. He's still active. He's still active. You've had that person in your life. Be that person now for somebody else. Be that person now for somebody else. Those are just three simple reasons why and sort of objective reasons why we shouldn't make graven images. I want to ask you one more question and answer that. What is the punishment for breaking God's commands? What is the punishment for breaking God's command? Look at verse 5. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. The Lord is jealous. The Lord wants your love, and he will not tolerate shared love. It's seen all throughout the Bible. And then he says this, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But verse 6, but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. If you haven't stuck with me thus far, you need to stick with me because this is awesome. It may seem out of place at this point that the Lord sort of points to a generational punishment and a generational a punishment for disobeying his commands and a generational blessing for obeying his commands. I hope to explain this for you because um, this is sort of something you, you can't really take as a blanket statement. You have to look in the context of all of Scripture. This is not necessarily, as we will look, it's not nece- as we'll see, it's not necessarily saying, it is saying, that the generations will pay for the sins of the Father. It is saying that the generations will be blessed because of the the faithfulness of the Father. But it's not necessarily saying that is the only way. I have been convinced for some time now that first-generation Christians could potentially have a much more difficult time following Christ because they are the first of their kind. They are the first of their kind. Now, I have been blessed to be one of many generation, generations of Christians in my family. I believe the reason uh, for this struggle for some people is seen in this scripture. And that it is that sons and grandsons and great-grandsons are either blessed with godliness because of the faithfulness of their father for a thousand generations, or they are even punished to the third and fourth generation because of the sins of of the Father. But we must be clear on something. It doesn't have to be so. It is not a given that just because your grandfather or your father was a bum, that you're going to be a bum or your kids are going to be a bum. 
bums. But it's also not a given that just because your father was a Christian or just because your grandfather was a Christian that you will automatically be a Christian or that your children will automatically be Christians. We must be clear. It's not a given that just because your grandfather was racist that you will have to be or that you will be punished for that. Or it's not a given because your grandfather was a pastor that you will be or that you'll even be a Christian. It is implied in our text and spoken directly in texts like Ezekiel 18, chapter 18, that the generational punishment and the generational blessing can be broken. Ezekiel 18, 19 says, Yet you say, Why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. This is important. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. This is so vastly important. It's especially important in our society, in our social justice climate, where people will tell you that you need to apologize for slavery and segregation that your grandfather or your great-grandfather or may not either were a part of. The SBC, the SBC has made multiple times of reparations and formal apologies for the injustices done to black Americans. And I think one is plenty. I think one is part of it. I don't mean plenty, but one is definitely needed. But it can't be done every year because that is not gospel to continue to hold sins over your head. The sins of the past, even sins you commit, but especially sins that you didn't commit. One SBC pastor stated recently that race relations cannot improve until white people take the blame for their racist grandparents and each of them take responsibilities in their role in assassinating MLK. Friends, anyone who tries to make you believe something like this is presenting a gospel that is anti-Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the soul that sins shall die. The soul that sins is responsible for that sin. And there is a generational punishment for sure. But we must see that verses like uh, Ezekiel 18, 21... It says, but if the wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is right and just, he shall surely live and not die. Listen, none of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. The soul that sins shall die, but we are not responsible for our grandparents. They have taken responsibility for their sin. And even we can break the cycle. But we can't break the cycle if we're held back to past sin. We can't break the cycle if we just assume that it will always be that way because it has always been that way. We cannot break addiction. We cannot break hate. We cannot be our own person. It's not only sinful, but it is evil to try to make a redeemed person responsible for the sins that are not even theirs. Most importantly, what the full context of these verses teach us is that you can break the cycle of sin and ungodliness for your children and for your children's children and for their children. 
You cannot save your children. You cannot make your children pursue righteousness. But you can lead them on an upward trajectory to faith by your faithfulness right now. You can make the path more clear and more discernible and sometimes even easier. You aren't responsible for slavery. You don't owe reparations. You are not your great-grandparents. But this is very important. Only if you break the pattern. Only if you break the cycle. The Bible says if you repent, if you abandon that way. But if you don't break the cycle and you still hold racial tendencies, you still hold the ideology, at least in heart, that grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents or just other people held in general, you have not broken the cycle and you are still under the curse of that sin. What does it tell me? Everything that we do now matters. Everything that we do now matters. It matters more than what your family did, more than the social and economic background that you come from. It matters more than how you were raised or even matters more than your past. Everything that you do now matters. You can break the cycle of generational punishment and you can heap generational blessing on your family by submitting to Christ, to the glory of Christ, by surrendering to the gospel and trusting in him as your hope and your present and your future. Pray with me today. Lord, you are good and you are holy and we trust you. We love you. Lord, help us to obey you, to be image bearers of Christ so that other people can look at us and say, at least on some level, that their faith is strengthened, that they can see Christ in us. Lord, which we found is the hope of glory. Lord, we love you, God. We praise you. We can never quite comprehend. We can never quite put into an image or into words who you are and what you've done for us. So help us to worship you in spirit and in truth and to walk by faith and not by sight. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.